0: This is HEC Media. The views and opinions expressed in the following program do not reflect the views or opinions of HEC or this station. Today, we have opera and musicals. We have new plays and a little foolishness. Hi, I'm Jerry Kowarski. And I'm Bob Wilcox. Come with us to the theater and we'll tell you what we've seen from our two seats on the aisle.
1: Welcome to Two on the Isle, the podcast, Produced by HEC Media in St. Louis, Missouri. Two on the Isle, the podcast, is an audio version of the televised and webcast program produced every two weeks that features a review of theater and opera productions around the St. Louis area, along with a calendar of theater due to play around the region. The regular hosts of the program, Bob Wilcox and Jerry Kowarski, have been hosting and reviewing all over town for more than 25 years on local cable and more recently on the internet. This podcast is from episode number 533 of the program, originally broadcast on Thursday, August 1st, 2019, and features reviews of the following plays. Paint Your Wagon at the Muni, La Boheme at Union Avenue Opera, Grease at Stages St. Louis, The Labute Theater Festival set to at St. Louis Actors Studio, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat at Overdue Theater Company, Footloose also at the Muni, Overdone, and Screaming at Optimum Pitch at First Run Theatre Company, and finally Jaws the Parody at Magic Smoking Monkey Theatre. Now to start our reviews for this episode, here's Bob Wilcox. Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe had their first hit together in 1947
2: with Brigadoon, a romantic fantasy set in the highlands of Scotland. Its music has a strong Scottish flavor. Next was the less less successful Paint Your Wagon, set in the California mountains during the gold rush of 1849. Traditional American folk music flavors this one. Then came the biggest success for the pair, My Fair Lady, followed by the movie musical Gigi, a multiple Oscar winner, and the Broadway musical Camelot, another enduring success. Perhaps because a couple of the songs from Paint Your Wagon were hits on the popular music charts, and perhaps because Lowe had done a little gold mining as a young man when he immigrated to the US from Germany, Paint Your Wagon was not allowed to rest. It became a movie with Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin both did their own singing. Playwright Patty Chayefsky pretty thoroughly rewrote the book, still set in a mining camp with some of the same characters, though significantly changed. Playwright David Rambo revised the libretto again for a production in Los Angeles in 2004. Now, playwright John Marins, best known for the Holocaust play Old Wicked Songs, has revised it again for the Muni. If you've seen any of those earlier versions, you'll recognize the music of the Muni, at least a few of the names of the characters, and a few incidents. With its world premiere on the Forest Park stage, playwright Marins opens his version with a stage full of covered wagons in the Gateway to the West and people singing I'm on My Way. Among them are young newlyweds parting as he goes to make his fortune, an abusive husband and his long-suffering wife, a South Carolinian and his slave, a pair of Chinese brothers, a free and educated black man, all headed for the gold fields. That's where we find Ben Rumson, another southerner who, when his wife died and his business failed, put his daughter in boarding school and headed west. When we meet him in the high woods, he seems as much a mountain man as a panner for gold gold he links up with a young Mexican Armando lost in the woods and together they go down the mountain to no-name city where the 49ers have gathered to find treasure in its streams and fields Rumson calms troubles that arise in the camp some because of the ethnic mix there some just because of the greed that gold lust feeds He winds up buying the abused wife from her husband in a curious Goldfields auction tradition. He marries her and together with Armando, they strike it rich in a fittingly ironic way. With the wealth, Rumson develops No Name City and gives it his name. He builds a tavern, dance hall and casino and brings in a troupe of dancing girls. He reconciles with his daughter, upset when she returns from school to find him married. She finds consolation with Armando, though Rumson, who has defended the Chinese and the blacks, resists seeing his daughter married to a Mexican. Playwright Marins has added much of the treatment of the minorities to Lerner's original, and I think contemporary audiences will find his version more satisfying and attractive. A big man with a big voice in the best tradition of the musical theater leading man, Matt Bogart plays Ben Rumson. Mamie Paris gives a survivor's strength to Kayla Woodling, the abused wife, who becomes Ben's wife and perfect partner. Omar Lopez-Saparo charms as the sweetly macho Armando, and Maya Kelleher brings emotional depth to both her estrangement from her father and her attraction to Armando as Jennifer Rumson. Preston Truman Boyd is the bullying South Carolinian and Alan K. Washington, his slave, who's freed by Rodney Hicks' free black man. Austin Koo is the older and Raymond J. Lee is the younger of the Chinese brothers, an order they are careful to preserve. Bobby Conte Thornton plays the trouble-beset young husband who is left behind his wife, played by Sally Glaze. Michael James Reed spews the worst of abuse on his wife Director and choreographer Josh Rhodes pulled these fine performances together. He gave the miners powerful angular choreography and included everyone in the dance hall dances. Michael Schweikart's sets combined with Kate Hevner's video designs to carry us to California, though the video had an unusual rough quality, perhaps reaching for an impressionist effect. John Lassiter's lighting included some evocative nighttime effects. Amy Clark designed the frontier clothes and John Shivers and David Patridge the sound. Music director Sinai Tabak, the cast, and the Muni Orchestra revealed how good Lowe's score is. Paint Your Wagon is still a little loose-jointed in places, but tight enough overall to be quite
0: enjoyable. Well, I like the first act a lot. I think the second act needs more work, but I'd like to see that happen.
2: Yeah, I I do hope that continues. I think there's something very good there, uh, especially the music. Let's hear some.
0: When I was listening to our family's recording of La Boheme in the early days of vinyl LPs, I would set the tone arm down in the middle of side one to get immediately to the good parts, the arias and duet that end the first act. I had no desire to skip ahead, however, at Union Avenue Opera's current staging of La Boheme. Every part of this production is not just good, but excellent, starting with the opening orchestral flourish. It's just right under conductor Elizabeth Hastings, buoyant but not too fast or loud. Hastings maintains an ideal balance between voices in the orchestra throughout and fully supports director Mark Fryman's approach to the libretto. The hallmark of that approach is full involvement in the action from every performer. In that opening scene I used to skip, the young artists are given distinctive, vibrant personalities by Jesse Donner as Rodolfo, the poet, Andrew Wannigman as Marcello, the painter, Isaiah Music Ayala as Colina, the philosopher, and Nicholas Ward as Chonard, the musician. Their shenanigans are a hoot when the artists dupe Benoit, their landlord, into revealing too much about himself when he was trying to collect the rent. The way they toss him around the room before they toss him out is a perfect fit for the music. Scott Levin was amusingly befuddled in this act as Benoit and amusingly put upon in the next act as Alcindoro, the sugar daddy of the bumptious singer Musetta. Donna as Rodolfo and Yulia Lysenko as Mimi, a seamstress with consumption, sing with striking beauty and act with stirring passion in the great arias and love duet at the end of act one. The ensemble, the children's ensemble under Alice Nelson, and Dale Obermark as the toy vendor are vital contributors to the festivities in the second act street scene. Cree Carrico brims over with sauciness as Musetta, who has an ostentatious dress to match her personality. Costume designer Teresa Doggett did not, however, give an appropriate finery to the bohemian artists. Patrick Huber used a forced perspective to add visual interest to a scenic structure that admirably serves all four scenes with a bit of alteration and some help from the properties by Kate Slavinsky. Behind the set piece is a wonderful panorama of the Parisian cityscape. The Bohemians impressively darken their performances for the seriousness of Act Three and the tragedy at the end of Act Four the enduring popularity of Labo M is easy to understand at the end of a production like this one.
2: Yeah, it was a, a very, very well done production. As you say, the comedy there in that first act was so well done by the four artists with uh, Mark Fryman, the director, I think uh, he's very good at that. And I, even I would not mind hearing a little more Puccini <laughs> right now. <laughs> In the musical Grease, Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey resurrect the bad kids of high school in the 1950s, the Greasers and their girls. They've thrown in a couple of straight arrows to be ridiculed, plus an old maid teacher and adults who are exploiting the burgeoning youth culture. Jacobs and Casey hit the fun parts of high school, the parties, the rivalries, the hot car, the macho posturing, all painted in cartoonish bright colors and broad strokes, but with reminders now and then of the real agony of adolescence. And Jacobs and Casey float all this on glorious sound. Each scene in Grease's episodic structure climaxes in a number that is an affectionate parody of the doo-wop and rock and roll of the period. The moment you recognize the musical reference, you start smiling at the cleverness of the guys who put this together. Then, Grease had the same misfortune as Painter Wagon. It was made into a movie. This time, it wasn't the plot that was done over, it was the music, the great joy of the original. Now, everyone uses some of those songs from the movie when they do Grease on stage, even the current production at stage at St. Louis, which is, I guess, what audiences expect. Even the book is revised at the beginning. We start with the movie's theme song, Barry Gibbs' embarrassingly disco grease is the word. When Danny suffers the alpha male teenager's most embarrassing moment, being seen without a date in a sea of cars, of course he wails alone at a drive-in movie, not a serenade to the girl who just dumped him. And you're the one that I want, can't match all choked ups Elvis references. But enough of the grouchy old man. Director Michael Hamilton, musical director Lisa Campbell-Albert, and choreographer Tony Gonzalez, eased us over the disco moments with greaser style. True Love eventually won out for Summer C. Bell Steven's Sandy Dombrowski, and Sam Harvey's Danny Zuko. Jesse Corbin made Kanicki a poster boy for Cool, matched by Morgan Cowling's Rizzo. All attitude all the time until her moving, there are Worst things I could do. Julia Johannes, Brooke Shapiro, and Lucy Moon completed the Pink Ladies, each with a specialty number, and Colin O'Connor, Patrick Mobley, and Frankie Tams, the Burger Palace Boys. Kendra Lynn Lucas blew the roof off as both Miss Lynch and the Teen Angel. Aisling Halpin and Brad Frenette played the Good Kids, Zach Trimmer, the singer at the prom, Tiger Brown, the winning dancer. Steve Isom has the voice of the 50s as DJ Vince Fontaine. James walk sets, again use translucent plastic, Brad Musgrove resurrects period dress in detail with great prom outfits with lighting by Sean M. Savoy and orchestral design by Stuart M. Elmore. Now, somebody please bring back the
0: original Grease. <laughs> well, I hope someone does that for your yes, sake, Bob. Yes, but but I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> no,
2: probably not, but I'll listen to whatever music we want to hear now. you
1: pick inside, it can be the You know you're riding Grease Lightning! Go, 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 Lightning, you burn them through the corner of the mile! Grease Lightning, go, Grease Lightning! I said go!
2: Grease Lightning, you're closing through the heel of go, Grease Lightning! You wash the paint! The chicks will scream! Oh! Go, 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 go,
1: You can follow all things Two on the Aisle on Facebook by searching for Two on the Aisle and liking the page and you can be the first to see reviews on youtube by subscribing to the two on the Isle channel and checking the notification bell again you can find us on facebook and youtube by searching for two on the Isle. in its second set at the
0: gaslight theater labute new play festival premiered three new one act plays and repeated neil LeBute's own contribution to the festival Setu began with Predilections by Richard Curtis. The setting is a restaurant where Sparlin is the guest of Laura. He's the influential obituary writer for an important publication. She wants to influence the obituary he will soon write for someone important to her. Kim Furlow is Laura and Teeler Cheatham as Sparlin deftly played the cat and mouse game between the characters. They were especially good when the cat and the mouse changed places. Wendy Renee Greenwood adroitly directed this piece and the next two. As an aside, Curtis should revise the script to acknowledge that the author of an article does not ordinarily write its headline. In Joseph Krotchik's Henrietta, the title character is the voice-controlled personal assistant in the navigation system just installed in the car owned by Carl, who is on his way to a tryst. There are two important clues to what is about to happen. First, Carl's wife instigated the upgrade from the old navigation system. Second, the new navigation system's name is CANS, which stands for kick-ass navigation system. I can't be certain where Henrietta's name comes from, but I do know that in Shakespeare's Henry IV, the title character's nickname is Prince Hal. Carly Rosenbaum as Henrietta and Chuck Brinkley as Carl had lots of fun with Henrietta's increasing dominance and Carl's increasing terror, especially when Henrietta won't open the pod bay doors, I mean the car doors. Sisyphus and Icarus, A Love Story, is William Ivan Folk's exploration of what might have happened if two characters from Greek mythology had managed to form an attachment so lengthy that they need couples therapy from a relationship guru in our time. The humor in the script was enhanced by the wacky performances of Teeler Cheatham as Sisyphus, Shane Signorino as Icarus, and Colleen Backer as the therapist but I would like to have seen more of a connection between the characters and the myths from which they arose. On our last show, Bob perceptibly reviewed La great Negro works of art about a couple attempting to navigate the twin minefields of online dating and race relations. I'll echo Bob's praise of Carly Rosenbaum's Jerry, Jazz Tucker's Tom, and John Pierce's direction. These characters have potential, I'd like to see the Butte do more with them than just guiding their feet to every possible landmine.
2: (laughs) Interesting way of putting it. Yeah. And yes, uh, three more interesting plays. I don't know that any of them were that outstanding for me, but uh, certainly uh, amusing and worth seeing. I agree. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat is probably my favorite Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice musical. Lloyd Webber does pastiche well, and this is mostly pastiche. I don't always know why he's using the style he is but it's fun to listen to and rice is not straining for great literature written for a boys school productions now like the one at overdue theater company often begin as a narrator gathers a group of children around her these kids get to do more than listen they even perform the joseph megamix themselves all good performers singers dancers becca harbison is a very smart director and patrick blanner a smart choreographer harbison has kept it simple and clear an uncluttered stage with some posters that changed messages and smart use of movement and grouping Blanner puts his best dancers up front and has trained well those upstage. Aubrey Horde is very clear and hospitable as the narrator. Shane Rudolph's Joseph welcomes both praise and suffering graciously. His brothers are played by Nick Perrin, Victoria Leninger, Alex Miller, Tyler Lutkenhaus, Jacob Kujath. Andrew Feigenbaum, Maggie Canizales, Ben Canizales, Samantha Hayes, Morgan McKenney, and Catherine Wheelis, and Mark Strom in shorts and suspenders and T-shirt is their father. Someone had the bright idea to print the name of each member of the family on their t-shirts. Mark Conrad is a truly kingly Pharaoh in voice and body. Wayne Mackenberg is his butler and Ray Martin his unfortunate baker. Chris Loind plays Pharaoh's Lieutenant Potiphar and Kelachy Loind his seductive wife. Music director Matt Kelserich gets very good sounds from singers and orchestra. Ryan K. Young designed lights, Richard Dempsey, the sound, Matthew Garrison, and Becca Harbison, the scenery. Jacob Kujath designed and constructed the dazzling Dreamcoat. Stage manager Matthew Garrison kept things running smoothly, and possibly the hardest working person in show business, Sarah Blackwood, is the child monitor. (laughs) I enjoyed this well-prepared and executed Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I did too. Yeah. Let's hear some some music.
0: Footloose surprised me more than once in its recent incarnation at the Muni. The first surprise came from the program booklet. In his introductory essay, the Muni's executive producer, Mike Isaacson, noted that Footloose ranked number one on the Muni's most recent audience survey. The second surprise was the show itself. I liked it, a lot, for the first time. The 21-year-old musical was adapted from the 1984 film of the same name, starring Kevin Bacon. The central character is Wren McCormick, a high school student from Chicago who loves dancing. Wren's father has just abandoned the family, forcing Wren and his mother to move to an out-of-the-way small town called Beaumont, where they have been offered a place to stay by Wren's aunt and uncle. If adjusting to a new place, a new school, and a new crowd weren't enough, Wren has to cope with the town's ban on dancing. The town's minister, Reverend Moore, is behind the ban, and he's a man of tremendous influence, except in his own family. His teenage daughter, Ariel, is quite the rebel. She sneaks out at night to meet up with an abusive boyfriend and eventually takes a shine to Wren. I ascribe my increased appreciation for the show to the brilliance of the musical numbers under choreographer Jessica Hartman and music director Andrew Graham to the astute focus on relationships in the direction by Tony Award-winning actor Christian Borrell, to the fluidity of staging facilitated by the synergy of Tim Maccabee's scenic design and Greg Emmita's video design, to Rob Denton's lighting, John Shivers' and Davis Partridge's sound, Leanne Dopkowski's costumes, and Kelly Jordan's wigs, and finally to the excellent performances by Mason Reeves as Wren, Jeremy Kushner as Reverend Moore, Mackenzie Kurtz as Ariel, Heather Ayres as Ariel's mother and Arlesia Clercy as Wren's mother. The climactic encounter between Wren and the Reverend was especially moving, perhaps because Kushner knows both sides of that relationships because he originated the part of Wren on Broadway. My final footloose surprise came in the note from the Muni about the attendance at the Tuesday evening performance, 10,314, less than 500 shy of capacity. I wasn't the only one who liked this show.
2: Well, uh, I'm glad all of you people did like it. I mean, I I, I don't know, that that rubs me the wrong way somehow, that show, every time I see it. Anyway, uh, let's hear some of this music and watch them dance to it or whatever they do.
1: If you're on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us there too. You can follow us on Twitter at Two on the Aisle and be among the first to find out about our uploaded reviews to YouTube and any other special news that we have to announce. Plus on Instagram, you can see some sneak peeks at the shows we've just gotten video for before the next episode when you follow us. Again, follow us on Twitter and Instagram by looking for Two on the Aisle. Always presenting new
2: plays, First Run Theater offered two this time. Overdone by David Hawley is a farce and it was directed broadly by David Houghton. Hawley knows how to write funny moments, though he sometimes succumbs to the danger in farce and pushes events past the suspension of disbelief. Overdone unfolds a dinner party gone wrong. Barbara Hill played the hostess who tried very patiently and very hard. David DeRose was her husband, the supposed host, though he rarely rose to the occasion. Flynn Hayes was an actor, a brother, and a man with a secret. Alex Alderson was also a brother and melanie clug his wife they all except the hostess were guilty. Peg Flatch's Screaming at Optimum Pitch is not so much a play as three connected monologues from a daughter, a mother, and a grandmother. Each story is well written and was well performed by Caitlin Chatro as the daughter, Melanie Klug, again, as the mother, and Gwyneth Roush as the grandmother. Joshua Tioli was a voice without a name. David Houghton directed, I like Flash's writing. I hope she'll give us a play. David Bornholt, Molly Smith, and Denise Mandel were stage men Managers, Jean Chavarella was responsible for properties, she and Betsy Gazoski for lights, Denise Mandel for costumes, Mark Choquette for set. Brad Slavic was the composer and sound designer. Now that First Run is back on its feet, I look forward to more new plays.
0: Agreed. When St. Louis Shakespeare spawned Magic Smoking Monkey Theater, single movie parodies with the mutant offspring's bailiwick, Eventually, the monkeys set their sights on complete sagas, such as Star Wars and Harry Potter. These large-scale efforts could be problematic. Reducing a movie to a third its length is one thing. Reducing three seasons of Game of Thrones to a 30th of their length is another. I was happy to see the monkey focusing once again on one film in their latest venture, Jaws, the parody. It was vintage magic-smoking monkey because Jaws, the parody, did not bite off more than it could chew. If you think I've reached too far for that joke, magic smoking monkey theater may not be for you. If you appreciate a groaner or two or twenty, you should put the monkeys on your map. To be fair, monkey humor is usually more sophisticated than sophomoric antics that are all you laugh at if you don't know the underlying material. I have always found that familiarity breeds respect in a monkey show, so I streamed Jaws just before I went to the parody. I'm glad I did. Here's an example of how adroitly the parody undercuts the original. One of the movie's most significant scenes is when Mrs. Kintner, victim number two's mother, blames Chief Brody for her son's death because he took no action after the first shark attack. This humiliation is the key motivator for the water-fearing chief to do whatever it takes to end the threat. The monkey version turns the verbal assault into a physical beatdown. If the slapstick weren't enough, the monkeys further undermine the seriousness when Mr. Kintner asks the chief if their poker game is still on. This is a typical monkey strategy. Stick close to the actual dialogue until you have a chance to subvert it with a joke from left field. The leads in the movie were nicely recalled by Ryan Glosmeyer's Ernest Chief Brody, James Enstall's frenetic Cooper, and Rob McElmore's Unflinching Quint. A ton of bricks would have been more subtle than Dylan Comer's Mayor, but who cares about subtlety at a monkey show? Cast members who got into the swing of things included Jake Blondstein, Cece Day, Jack Jansen, Maya Kelch, Dina Massey, Bethany Miscannon, and Shannon Nara. The monkey business was enhanced by the costume designer Kayla Lindsay, lighting designer and scenic painter Natalie Piancentini, sound designer Anthony Elliott, and props designer James Hawkins. Putting actors inside the yellow barrels during the shark hunt was one of many clever touches from director Donna Northcott
2: yes well i have not seen the movie so i'm glad you were doing this review because (laughs) you got much more out of it than i did although they're always fun things i mean i love the the shark costume (laughs) among all those other wonderful things you always find at a monkey show
0: well there are definitely two
1: levels to the humor let's take a look at what's going on in theater around st louis for the month of august 2019. we'll start with the dinner theaters the Dinner Detective continues at the Hilton St. Louis Frontenac Murder Mystery Dinner Show on Saturday nights. Zombie Love begins at the Lemp Mansion Comedy Mystery Dinner Theater on August 2nd and runs through November 2nd. And Sherlock Holmes in The Case Without a Clue begins at the Bissell Mansion Murder Mystery Dinner Theater on August 2nd and continues through October 27th. Grease continues at Stage of St. Louis through August 18th. The Wizard of Oz runs at the Alton Little Theater in Alton, Illinois, through August 4th. La Boheme continues at Union Avenue Opera through August 3rd. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat continues at Overdue Theater Company through August 4th. Mamma Mia! continues at Hard Road Theater Productions in Highland, Illinois, through August 4th. Paint Your Wagon wraps up its run at the Munion Forest Park. It runs through August 2nd. Plaza Suite is mounted by Act Two Theater in St. Peter's through August 11th. Assisted Living, the musical, at Playhouse at Westport Plaza, runs through August 11th. Disney's The Little Mermaid plays at Clinton County Showcase in Breeze, Illinois, through August 4th. Footloose the Musical begins at Hawthorne Players on August 2nd and continues through the 11th. The Rising Star Showcase takes place at Fox Performing Arts Charitable Foundation on August 4th. Matilda begins in Forest Park at the Muni on August 5th and continues through August 11th. Guys and Dolls begins its run on August 8th at Stray Dog Theater and continues until August 24th. A Man of No Importance begins at RS Theatrics on August 9th and runs through the 25th. The St. Louis Fringe Festival begins on August 13th and continues through the 18th. And Antigone is mounted by St. and ERA Theater on August 14th and runs through the 31st.
0: We'll be watching some of these productions from our two seats on the aisle. And we'll be watching the mail and the email for your thoughts about theater in this program and for items for the calendar. Send them to Two on the Aisle, HEC Media, 3221 McKelvey Road, Bridgeton, Missouri, 63044. Or by email to TOTA at hectv.org.
2: Join us next time on Cable and the Web for musicals and nothing but musicals. We'll see you
1: then. The producer for this episode of Two on the Isle was Bob Wilcox, associate producer Jerry Kowarski, ATC media producer is Paul Langdon. Our hosts this week were Jerry Kowarski and Bob Wilcox, television director was Rick Rebelke. Segment editors and videography were by Kerry Marks, Paul Langdon, Ben Smith, and Rod Milam. Audio was by Paul Langdon. Associate producers were Kerry Marks and Ben Smith. Studio camera operators were Kerry Marks and Jack Conigan. Teleprompter was by Jack Conigan. Set and lighting were by Paul Langdon and Kerry Marks. Our theme music was by Daniel McGowan. ATC technical support was by Jane Ballou. And ATC media assistant producer, social media broadcaster, podcast producer, and podcast host is Rod Milam. Two on the Aisle was made possible with the support from the Regional Arts Commission of St. Louis. Don't forget you can find all things Two on the Aisle online on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Just go to each social media platform, search for Two on the Aisle, and like, subscribe, and follow us there. Thanks for downloading the Two on the Aisle podcast. We'll see you next time.
2: This is an HEC Media Podcast.